Hey, Lakeview family, and welcome to this second edition in our series on the heart of judgment, studying through the book of Micah. Uh, Last week, we introduced the problem of Micah that uh, God's judgment is coming because his people have turned away from him. And chapter 2 is going to continue that theme, um, showing the injustice of God's people and the justice of God bringing judgment on them. Uh, the best stories that we read all have a sense of um, poetic justice. Right? We get to the end of the story and we love to see the good guys get what they deserve and the bad guys get what's coming to them. Uh, and we enjoy it even more when that justice is particularly fitting. Right? When the rewards for the good guys and the punishment of the bad guys is related to the actions that they've taken throughout the story. One of the best, probably, revenge stories that you could read would be the Count of Monte Cristo, um, where uh, at the beginning of the story, out of jealousy of the hero, these three guys take away everything in his life and send him to jail. Literally, he gets arrested um, right at at his wedding ceremony, right before he gets married to the love of his life, and just as he's been entering into the career he's been working for as a captain of a ship And then when he gets out of prison 13 years later, he dedicates his life to taking revenge on those three men. He actually sees himself as the instrument of God's justice. And and he determines not just to punish them, but, but to take away from them exactly what they took away from him. To give them poetic, fitting justice for what they did. And and he does it. Um, He he ends up turning the family against the man. Turning the man's own family against him um, for the one who stole his wife. Um, For the magistrate who denied him justice, he reveals his crimes for the whole world to see. And for the man who stole his career, he, he forces him to pay his last dollar for a meager meal in a robber's dungeon. And on top of that, all three of them lose their life. Two of them wind up dead and one of them ends up mad and insane, no longer able to enjoy anything in life. But the end of the story, Monte Cristo actually wonders and and concludes that that he's taken this too far um, because his justice ends up hurting some innocent people, particularly the children of those three men. And kind of the moral of the story might be James 1.20, that the anger of man does not bring the righteousness of God. But what we're going to see in Micah 2 is that the wrath of God does bring the righteousness of God. That when God brings justice, he is always perfectly just in the way that he does it. Micah 2 is going to start um, by zooming in on some particular sins of God's people. Um, In chapter 1, we saw the people summarily condemned for their idolatry, their abandonment of the worship of God. And Micah 2 is going to give us some more detail on how their idolatry results in injustice towards others. And that because of both of these, God's justice is coming. So um, let's pick it up here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it is, in the pow- their, it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, 
and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Micah 2 is condemning some practices where it seems people had found a way to exploit their power to seize the land, um, the houses and the, the land, the farmland of others. We don't know exactly what they were doing. They, they were probably working within the bounds of the legal system in some way. Um, this probably wasn't a private thing, but everybody knew about it, and, and this is the way things worked. And, and this would have been a big deal in an agrarian society like Judah, where land was the most important form of wealth and security that a family could have. Uh, a good picture of this, we, we don't necessarily relate to that because we, we don't, most of us base our income off of the land that we have. But um, in the Grapes of Wrath, you get kind of a picture of what would have happened when farmers, those who base their security and wealth on their land, lose it. You, you follow the Jodes family, and, and during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression because of the economic and uh, environmental problems, they end up losing their land. It's repossessed by the bank, and they have to get in a car and drive across the country, end up in California, where they end up at the mercy of the landowners. The landowners who are intentionally working to keep this uh, growing population of workers at, at a disadvantage so that they can have cheap labor. They don't want to pay them too much, so they make sure they never get too far ahead, never in a position to demand justice. They employ sheriffs, deputies as hired thugs. They actively prevent federal aid from helping out the workers. And, and the end of the story does not end up well for the Joads. They end up even more impoverished and destitute than they were at the beginning of the story. And something like that is what's happening in Judah. The powerful had found a system whereby they could get people's land and they were using that power to make themselves rich at the expense of others. They were oppressing the poor. They were exploiting the less fortunate. And Micah says that because of that oppression, because of this injustice, God's judgment is coming. Verse three, therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields." Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Micah 2 is connecting the people's abandonment of God that we saw in chapter 1 to their mistreatment of, the others, of others in chapter 2. Right In Micah 1, we saw that God's judgment was coming, the miniature sun coming down because of the creeping idolatry, the worship of false gods that came into the land. But Micah 2 says that God is going to destroy the people because of their oppression of the poor. And so somehow, Micah is assuming that these two are connected. God's judgment is coming because of both of these things. And if you work through this, you'll find that these ideas are actually related because the mistreatment of the poor is always a bad thing for anyone to do, but it's especially egregious among God's people. 
Because this sort of greed and oppression is specifically prohibited by God's law. The Torah, that is the law that Israel was supposed to be living under, under God's rule, specifically recognizes the importance of land and protects property rights from the sort of exploitation that's going on in Micah 2. The oppressors are actually violating the laws around Jubilee. That's the, the releasing of debt. This is from Leviticus 25.10 in, in the law. It says, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. What this is talking about is essentially every 50th year, that was to be every year after the seventh seven, the seventh Sabbath year, all the land that had been sold during those 50 years was supposed to revert just to go back free of charge to the original family that God had given it to. Built into the law was a social safety net where every generation would receive just a reset of the property, of the wealth that had been distributed among God's people. Debt and loss were only to go so far. This most important source of wealth was protected and never could be lost forever. And this is not just an economic principle. This isn't just God's best economic policy for uh, fallen people. Jubilee is about living in light of God's generosity. It was established because when the people came into the land, everything that they received was originally from God. They got land, fields, vineyards that they did not work for, that God simply gave to them. And so once every generation, the people were to remember God's generosity towards them by resetting the score. And and the effect would be that if I lived in God's land, I would know that my inheritance came from God. It was not what my family had worked for. It was not the fruit of their own production. It was a gift from a generous God. And because of that, I could be generous and give back whatever land I had inherited during that period. Because ultimately, what I'm doing is trusting God. I'm living in a continual trust and dependence on God to be generous towards It's it's really the same idea as the Sabbath, right? Where, Where we can rest once a week. We don't need to work every day. And once every seven years, we're supposed to let the whole land rest and trust that God is going to provide enough for us during that year. God's people living in God's land were living under his provision and had these laws of Sabbath and Jubilee in place to help them recognize that. But what we learn is that God's people really never lived under this principle. Second Chronicles 36 gives us one of the reasons that the people end up going into exile. And it, it says this, The king of Babylon took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. In other words, we find out the people had been skipping that Sabbath year basically since the first time, first day they came into the promised land. And so now 70 Sabbath years had accumulated and God said, you did not keep 
my Sabbath. You did not live under my rule. You did not trust my generosity. And so now I'm going to send you out of the land so that it can enjoy the Sabbaths that you never gave. When Micah 2 is condemning God's people, he's not just condemning them generally for being greedy and scheming, though he is condemning them for that. But he's condemning them because they were not really living in God's land anyway. They were trying to build their own kingdom by the work of their hands to accumulate as much as they could for themselves, not trusting God to be generous, not living in light of his generosity by being generous towards others. Before we move on, I just want to note real quick that there's, there's a ray of hope in these verses too. In verse 5, in condemning those who oppress the land, what God says is that they will have no place in God's assembly, that he will drive them out. But it should start to make you wonder, where is God's assembly going to be after the people go to exile? How, isn't that all going to be taken away? What, maybe there's some ray of hope after the people are driven out. We don't have any details. We don't know what that looks like, nothing definite. But you should begin to ask that question. What is being hinted at here? What assembly will there be once God drives his people out? And then Micah goes right back on to argue the rightness of God's judgment against the people's injustice. Verse 6, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? We, we get a sense here that Micah has been declaring this judgment on God's people for a while, right? If you remember, this book is a collection of his words to his people, to God's people over his lifetime of ministry. And here you're sort of getting a sample of the responses that he got over the years where God's people were twisting his words to rebuke Micah for saying that God was going to judge them. So the people are questioning whether it's, it's even right for God to bring disaster. Should this be said? Are you getting this right, they're saying? The Lord said his love endures forever. Is he now impatient with us? Are these his deeds? Does a good God really bring destruction doesn't he do good? Now, those are pretty similar to some modern questions, actually, that we ask about God, right? The way we would probably say it most today is, doesn't the Bible just say that God is love? God doesn't judge us harshly. He understands that we're human. Of course, he's going to forgive me for fill in the blank of whatever it is you want to do right now. Does God really cause suffering, pandemics, wars, genocides? Can we really say he does that? Would a loving God really send people to hell? But, but Micah's response to those sorts of questions is, is really, it's pretty simple. It might almost seem too obvious. He takes it out of the abstract discussions that we like to have about God's character, what God generally should do based on our favorite attributes of him. And he doesn't disagree with those assessments necessarily. He doesn't say God's not good, right? Um, but instead, he turns the camera back and says, but look at who you are. You said God does good to those who walk uprightly. But look at yourselves. Are you upright? Isn't it good for God to condemn evil? Wouldn't it be, it's not wrong for God 
to be the enemy of his people when his people have become the enemy of goodness itself. Verse 8, he says, But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. In response to the twisting of God's word, Micah simply holds up a mirror and says, you don't understand God's response to you. You don't understand why God is bringing judgment on you because you don't see yourselves rightly. God doesn't do good to you just because you call yourselves his people. You are God's people when you live under his rule and your actions your oppression of the poor, your abandonment of him for idols, your rejection of the generosity that he has demonstrated by your refusal to give it to others shows that you are not God's people no matter what you call yourself. It's pretty similar to what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 3. This is Matthew 3, 9 and 10. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so what we learn is that it is not enough to claim the name of God. It's not enough to say the right words, whether that is, I am a son of Abraham or I am a Christ follower. Today, we might say God could raise up from the swamp reformed, charismatic Christians. That's not the question. The question is, does your faith bear fruit? Is your faith identifiable by observable actions? Do your actions demonstrate that you are among God's people by the way you treat the poor with generosity not indifference. By the way you prioritize money lower than other things. By the way you care about those crying out in the street, not first asking whether they deserve your pity, but simply weeping with those who weep. Can people see your faith by your deeds? By the way you live, the way you speak, the way you give, the way you serve, the way you encourage Does your faith express itself in the way you live toward others? Or do your actions show that you have abandoned God no matter what you call yourself? Micah is exposing the unrighteousness of the people. That their claims to be God's people are hollow. And in so doing, he's demonstrating the rightness of God's judgment on them. That he's removing them because they have already rejected him. Verse 10, he says, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. God's judgment here is poetic. It's fitting destruction. Like the Count of Monte Cristo, God is taking away from the people what they have stolen. You who steal houses, the land will be no rest for you. You who strip the poor will be stripped of splendor. 
When all is seen at the end of the day, even God's enemies must admit that he was perfectly just. Many people are uncomfortable with the idea that God brings judgment. And, and I, I get that. I'm uncomfortable with these conversations. The answers are hard, and I go back to the questions again and again, but pictures like this help assure me that God's justice is never arbitrary. It's never unfair. I'm not going to get to the end and wonder if that was really the right ending. Whatever the reality of hell is actually like, No one's going to look at it at the end of the day and say, I'm not sure how I feel about that. We will see, just as God brings perfect, fitting justice to the situation in Micah's day, he will bring perfect, fitting justice to every situation at the end of all things. And Micah's picture of the fittingness of God helps us recognize that he deals justly within justice. And it's not done. There's two more verses in here that that seem like such a change, they're almost bewildering. In verse 12, it says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. That's such a change in tone from the first 11 verses, it's hard to know what to do with it. Commentators are actually kind of divided about what is being pictured here. Some see in this the moment where uh, God breaks uh, the siege of the Assyrians during Hezekiah's day. God broke out the people from the siege. Some see it more as the future redemption of God's people out of exile from Babylon. As I was reading this, I kind of saw it as God breaking the oppressed out from the oppressors in Jerusalem. Um, No one else seemed to think that's what it meant, so hold that one loosely. But uh, I think the point is that, that it could be any of these things. Because all of those are pictures of the justice of God in saving his people. Right, the focus here is not on specifically what God is going to do, but on the rightness of God in the judgment that he brings, and also here in the rescue that he brings. And we see that these are not two different things. The translation of uh, he who opens the breach could, could really be translated just the breaker, like kind of a title. God is the breaker as he goes up before them. And what we see here is that the breaker is also the rescuer. Part of God's response to injustice is to break it down, to break in and break through and rescue his people out of their situation. God's judgment is destructive, like a miniature sun melting all of the things around it, but it's not only destructive. Unlike the Count of Monte Cristo, who mainly focused on destroying his enemies, God also rebuilds his people. We're going to see this again and again, that part of God's perfect justice in relating to a fallen humanity not only means 
that sin will always be met with poetic justice, that no one will ever get away with anything, that no sin will ever remain hidden, but all will be judged. It means that. But it also means that the good guys get what they deserve in the end too. There is going to be a people, and we still have a long way to go to figure out how that can be possible. But God's justice is shown both in his breaking of sin and his rescuing of his people. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see more of what it's going to take, how God is going to accomplish both of those things as he continues to relate to a fallen humanity in the situations that we find in Micah and in our own day. Thank you. I hope you join in next week.